We're going to resume our Romans study this morning, and we are in Romans 6, 1 through 14. So you can see the text if you want to open there, but I'm going to just begin us with a word of prayer. So let's unite our hearts and pray together. Heavenly Father, we are joyful and grateful that we can call you Father because you have united us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unsearchable riches of Christ that you've lavished on us in your grace and in your mercy. We thank you for his atoning death for our sins. We thank you for his righteous life, which has been credited to us. We thank you for his resurrection from the dead, uh, by which we experience newness of life and the hope of future resurrection ourselves. And we thank you for his ascension into heaven, so that we can say that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And we know that all of it was despite the fact that we were your enemies, that we were sinners when Christ died for us, when he reconciled us to you. And we're grateful that you had mercy upon us. Help us to remember that as we live our lives, that we too might be gracious people, merciful people. And we pray that even this morning, As we dive back into Paul's letter to the Romans, that you would once again instruct our hearts with the truths of your word. Help us to understand this passage and to apply it to our lives. We pray for the renewal of our minds that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. That he would wash us with the water of the word so that we would go away from here revived in our hearts, changed in our attitudes, our mindset, our values, and and reminded of things that we perhaps already know, but need to know afresh. And so we pray this, Lord, for our good, of course, but ultimately for your glory, because we know that we were intended to bring you glory through our lives. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a little bit of review here so that we can remember where we're at in the letter. That opening section, we remember that Paul expressed his desire to preach the gospel in Rome. And he explained that that was because the gospel revealed a righteousness from God, which everyone who believed could receive. Right? So you all remember that famous verse, Romans 1.16 where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, verse 17, a righteousness is revealed from faith, for faith. And so that's the sort of introductory section. And then we moved into this long section in Romans 1, 18 through 3:19, where Beginning with Gentiles and then moving to Jews, he explained how everyone needs this saving righteousness which is revealed in the gospel because everyone, Jew and Gentile, is under God's wrath because of their unrighteousness. So remember Romans 1.18 says, or 1.16 and 17 says, the gospel reveals a righteousness which can save. And then 1.18 says that... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so that was really the 
point of that section is to tell us the bad news that we are unrighteous so that we might see our need for the gospel, the righteousness that the gospel reveals. And then Romans three twenty one through 31, I always want to highlight this for you because it really is the beating heart center of the book tells more about this righteousness that the gospel reveals and it describes it as a gift which is given by God out of his grace and it describes how it is based on Christ's atoning sacrifice. So the atoning sacrifice of Christ is important. It explains how God can be both righteous himself and that he can declare righteous sinners. And then he talks about how we receive this gift of righteousness through faith apart from works so that all the glory would go to god all right so that then we move to romans 4 where paul took genesis 15 6 and he unpacked that one verse in great detail throughout that chapter really i think to show that this gospel that he was preaching about justification by faith is not something new but that it was taught well it's not entirely new but that it was taught even in the Old Testament. And so that was what chapter 4 was about. And then chapter 5, you remember that I mentioned that in chapter 5, verse 1, there was sort of a transition that happened in the book where after describing the gospel of justification by faith, he begins to talk about all these other blessings that we receive when we believe in Christ in addition to justification. So justification isn't the only blessing, but a justified person also possesses other blessings. And in that chapter, he talks about peace and grace and joy and the hope of future glory all through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about in the latter half of the chapter, which is where we just came from, how the reason why we have this hope of future glory is because Christ's obedience as the second Adam has overcome and swallowed up Adam's disobedience. And and therefore he says, you know, where sin abounded, what's the other part of that? Grace. Grace abounds much more, right? So that's sort of the climactic ending of chapter five. And that brings us to where we're at today. And chapter six Paul, what he does is he answers a potential objection that someone might raise as a result of his teaching, especially there at the end of chapter 5. Okay, so that gives us a little teaser into where we're headed in chapter 6. Now, let's start by just reading chapter 6, 1 and 2. So if someone would read those verses, that would be helpful. Chapter 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? All right, so Paul refuted any notion that his teaching at the end of chapter 5 somehow promoted sinning. And he refuted it by pointing out that those who are justified by grace in Christ have also died to sin. And we'll talk more about what he means by that. But you can see that's the basic point that he's going to that he that he articulates there at the end of verse 2, right? By no means how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Now, just to go back and sort of look at this more closely, when he says, what shall we say then? You can see here again a hint. There are multiple places throughout the book, especially in these opening chapters, but really throughout the book, where Paul uses this literary device called a diatribe, where he interacts. A diatribe simply means that you interact with a fictitious opponent. In other words, I don't think that Paul is thinking here of specific people in the Roman church that he knows will be saying this, right? Rather, he's, he's imagining someone might say this. So interacting with an imaginary opponent, that's what a diatribe is. And that's, we use it actually quite frequently if you think about it. In just normal conversation, sometimes you will interact with an imaginary opponent because you're anticipating a potential objection or something that you want to interact with in conversation. So that's what he's doing here. So what shall we say then? And then he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So here's the objection that might be posed by this imaginary opponent that Paul is interacting with here. I want to point out that if you look back in chapter 5, verse 20, right? That famous line, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. And then he says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus. So, but especially this little phrase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you could just imagine, and perhaps Paul was thinking here, you know, he's really emphasized the fact that we are declared righteous in the sight of God, justified by as a gift of grace when we simply believe in him. And then he's really emphasized that fact throughout the letter and he, and he comes to this climactic point at the end of chapter 5 where he talks about Christ's obedience overcomes Adam's disobedience and he's basically been saying that we who are in Christ, our sin is forgiven and we have and the obedience of Christ is credited to us. So that in Christ we have been freed from sin and we are now righteous in him. And it's all of grace, all of grace. And you could hear, you probably could hear, you know, this objection getting louder and louder and louder in his head. By the time he comes to chapter 6, he's got, I've got to deal with this. And that is, if this is true, Paul, then wouldn't it mean that sinning isn't a big deal, right? Justified by grace apart from faith. And in fact, you said where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's outrageous, Paul, because what that would seem to mean is that sinning is not only not a big deal because you're forgiven and justified apart from your works, but that sinning would even be a good thing because you said where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So do you see the objection? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? If, if what you're saying is true, Paul, where sin in, abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, then why not sin? So that grace might keep abounding, right? So you can see his objection. It's really not just that one line, though. It's really rooted back in all that he'd been saying about how we're justified by grace apart from works. And in fact, perhaps you've either been on the other side of that objection or perhaps you know someone who's been on the other side of that who has articulated this objection. In fact, if you go back in church history, 
This was one of the big objections of the Roman Catholic Church to Protestantism. If you say that, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, if you say that we are justified as a gift of grace by simple faith alone, right? Sola fide, apart from works, you're just promoting sin. You're promoting unrighteousness. People won't have any motivation for holiness. Because in Rome, remember that justification was not a legal declaration simply, not a simply a legal declaration of not guilty but righteous, but justification was essentially transformed into the process of you becoming more and more righteous over time. Then after you died, you would go to purgatory where the last vestiges of your sin would be sort of paid for through the temporal punishments of purgatory. And then finally at the end of that, you could be accepted into heaven. Do you see? But if you come along and say, when you put your trust in Christ, you are not guilty, but righteous. Whoa, you know, now justification has nothing to do with your works. And you say, yeah, duh, that's what Paul's been saying in Romans and Galatians. But this objection immediately comes. Well, then doesn't that promote sin? Doesn't that take all of the motivation out of living a holy life? Why do I need to worry about it? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So you feel the weight of that? This is the objection he's getting at. Doesn't your teaching about justification, Paul, promote sinning? Okay, so that's what he's going to address. And this little phrase here in the Greek, it's a grammatical structure called an emphatic negation. Now we in English, when we have double negatives, it sort of, they cancel each other out, right? But in Greek, that's not the case. Sometimes negatives will be piled up to make it more emphatic. So this is an emphatic negation where Paul is saying, by no means or absolutely not. So Paul is saying, I am absolutely not in any way, shape or form undermining the need for holiness, the need for obedience when I teach this free justification. All right. He vehemently rejects the idea that his teaching about justification by grace in Christ somehow promoted sinning. And you can imagine the Apostle Paul, you know, he was probably, I, I picture him as not so much, you know, the stoic Brit, but the um, passionate Latin, you know, like, <laughs> no way, you know, he's emotional about this. And so he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, so this is a rhetorical question, obviously, that is responding to this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And you notice that the force of the rhetorical question is that we, you could put it positively, we cannot continue to live in sin. Why? Because of that little phrase right there, right? Because we have died to sin. Now, that's just a teaser, right? You have, then you say, okay, well, what does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, that's really what he's going to unpack in the rest of the, the chapter. 
is how believers who have been justified, again, remember, now we've turned to consider other blessings that we've received in addition to justification. But a believer who has been justified at the very same time has died to sin. And that's why a person who's justified by faith apart from works cannot, will not, just continue sinning. Now, of course, you say, wait a second, you know, we all continue to sin, right? Yes. But continue to sinning in terms of like what John, the Apostle John talks about throughout his epistle of 1 John, continuing sin as in unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of practicing sin with no repentance. That's the idea. And he's saying, no, we, we're not going to continue to live in sin in that way. Okay, so let's move to this next section here. Romans 6, 3 through 4. So would someone read that? Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized, we were buried, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay. So I think that Paul here is he's explaining that statement in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That is, how could we who died to sin still live in sin? And his explanation was that those who've been united to Christ have participated in, shared in his death and his resurrection. And I'm going to argue that which was symbolized by that this reality, our participation as believers in Christ's death and resurrection is symbolized by baptism. And this includes our participation in his death and resurrection includes not only dying to sin, but new spiritual life, right? Walking in newness of life. Uh, through his resurrection. So the dying to sin part is connected with our sharing in his death. And the newness of life part is connected with our sharing in his resurrection. Okay, okay so let's, let's walk through this a little bit. It says, do you not know? So again, it's interacting with this imaginary opponent in this diatribe. And he says, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what I'm going to argue here, and I'm going to explain this a little bit more in the interpretive question part that's coming next. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's using the ritual of baptism. So you think about what does baptism involve? Now, we as Baptists, you know, we have, we believe that Baptizo, the meaning of baptism is immersion in water, right? And coming up out of the water. So something is, this is one of the reasons why we're convinced that that's important. Because something is lost in the ritual of baptism if it's just sprinkling water upon a person's head. Now we obviously have difference from our Presbyterian brothers in that regard and, and others as well. But as 
as Baptists, we've believed in baptism by immersion. We, so a person in baptism goes underwater and then comes back out. Aha, now maybe you're starting to see the significance of that. What is that symbolizing? Death and resurrection, right? Going under the water, coming up out of the water, symbolizes our sharing, our being baptized into Christ, being buried with Him in His death, and also sharing, being raised with Him in His life, sharing in the benefits of His death and in the benefits of His resurrection. So you could say, being united with Christ by faith through the Spirit and then sharing in his, the benefits of his death and resurrection. And we could also actually add that his resurrection is of a piece with his ascension so that actually it's going under and coming to life and being seated with Christ in the heavenly places as well, right? But... By using this language of baptism here to describe that sharing with Christ in his death and resurrection, it's very interesting that if he does mean by this word here, the ritual of baptism, and he's short of talking about, he's using the ritual of baptism to describe what it symbolizes, right? He's saying, hey, you've been baptized. You have shared in Jesus's death. Well, the implication of that would be that he's assuming that everyone who has been experienced the ritual of baptism has also experienced what it symbolized, right? That's why he could just use the ritual to describe the event because he's assuming that people who have been baptized are in Christ, right? That's why you have the rite of baptism performed. That's why he could refer to the rite he could refer to what the rite symbolized using the language of baptism because he's assuming that everyone who's been baptized is in Christ. That they've shared in his death. That's an important aside, but I think that's what he's doing here. Now, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So you think of that famous uh, line in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, This is the gospel I preached by which you are saved, in which you stand, if indeed you haven't believed in vain. He says that Christ died for our sins and was buried. And he adds according to the scriptures. But So you, you have death and burial all of a piece, right, all together. He went down, he died and went down into the grave. And he's connecting here that our baptism symbolized our union with Christ in that, in his death and burial, right? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death. So as symbolized by our immersion under water in baptism, we as believers have participated in Christ's death. Do you remember that famous line in Galatians 2? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, you weren't up there on the cross with Christ, right? But the point is that when he died, it was like you died with him because he was doing it for you. And what he did counted for you. You shared in the benefits of his death. So that's what I think he's saying here. 
you were when you who were baptized, you who went under the water, you have shared in Christ's death and burial. What he did counted for you. You've participated. This is why when you talk about atonement, at the very heart of atonement is union with Christ. When you believe in Christ by the Spirit, the Spirit unites you to Christ. And then everything that is Christ becomes yours, right? In a sense, right? Not his deity and all. We understand there's limitations to it. But it's as the Spirit unites you to Christ so that you are in Christ, well, then all of the unsearchable riches of Christ become yours by faith as a gift. And here he's focusing on Christ's death. All right, and then finally, in order that, so we were buried with him by baptism into death, and not that we would stay down there, right? Not that, not that, and that's just using symbolic language. But in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, and picture here the symbolism of baptism as well, if I held you underwater and kept holding you underwater, you would think something's wrong. <laughs> Paul Rowe would come over and be like, Jeremy, stop. Bring him back up. You bring you up out of the water, right? Death and resurrection. That symbolized that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, when he talks about newness of life here, walk in newness of life, he's saying that we as believers have participated in the resurrection life of Christ, but he's describing it in terms of the fact that we now, right now, are walking, we're living in new newness of life. So what kind of life do you think he's talking about there? Right, spiritual life, right? So for instance, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And if someone would read verses 1 through through five, one through five, but someone read two, one through five. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Okay, and then if you look down at verse 10, notice, after reiterating, by grace you have been saved through faith, verse 8, Notice he, he adds to that, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so do you see, you were walking in verse 1, but you were walking in a state of spiritual death. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Walking being a euphemism for your life, right? And what did that look like? It looked like following the ways of the world, right? Following the devil. Living according to the lusts of your flesh. In other words, what was the wind 
blowing you along and guiding your course in life. It was the passions of your sinful nature. And you were under God's wrath. So there was guilt and corruption. That's what it looked like. You were walking, you were alive in the body, but spiritually you were dead. And that's what it looked like. But then down in verse uh, in verse 5, it says, but out of God's love, when we were dead, he made us alive. Notice, together with Christ. You were united to Christ and you were made alive in him. And what did that involve? It revolved being created in Christ for good works. So you think of, well, yeah, that makes sense because the prophet said, you know, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my commandments or I will write my law upon your hearts. Yeah. So there's a work of new creation here. You were created anew for good works so that you might walk in them. So there's new spiritual life that we experience now, right? And I'm, I'm imagining that there's some of us who grew up in the church and we don't, our conversion was somewhere along the line. We can't pinpoint it, but we just know that over time it was evident that, you know, one of those times that we prayed that God would save us, you know, we were saved and then we saw our life change. But then there's other people in this room who probably had a more dramatic change, right? And they just know it was more perceptible to them that they passed from spiritual death, walking in death, to walking in spiritual life. And they know that they were created anew. They were born again of the Spirit, right? And one of the evidences of that was that they began walking in good works, that is defined by God, loving God first, and then flowing out of that loving neighbor. That's what he's talking about. But notice he's connecting that newness of life with the resurrection of Christ. So that new spiritual life is actually a foretaste of the resurrection life of Christ, right? So you think of it this way. Christ was raised from the dead, and what your baptism symbolized as you came out from the waters is that you had not only died to your own sin nature, but you, have, you had been united to Christ in his resurrection, and you began to experience something of this, of new spiritual life that is nothing other than the resurrection life of Christ applied to you. And what will be the culmination of that resurrection life at the end of the age? What will it be? Yeah, your glorification. In other words, literally, if you're, if you're dead, right? Some of us will still be alive at that time. I, I just put myself into that camp. You know, like, maybe the Lord will come back during my life. But, like, if you are dead, your body will be raised. You will be you will be raised in a glorified body, freed from all corruption, right? So, But what you're experiencing right now as a believer is the foretaste of that. The first fruits, Paul called it in Romans 8. That new creation that will happen at the end of the age, you've begun to experience it by the regeneration that you've been created in Christ Jesus. You were... United to Christ in his death, you died to sin. And we're going to talk more about what that means. And you were raised with him. You experienced his resurrection life that he 
secured for you through his resurrection so that now you walk in new spiritual life. Okay, so let's stop for a moment and just, do you have questions at this point or something you want to clarify or, or add? Anyone? Okay. So if someone takes the attitude, oh, well, I'm saved, so. Right. I'm in like Flynn, as they used to say. <laughs> well, then that is the wrong attitude maybe indicates that maybe they're really not saved because they had that attitude. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it... it I have a friend like this that right. they just think, well, I'm, I'm good now, so... Right. Right, I mean, I think you would just be totally out of phase with Paul's understanding of conversion. So he could talk about justification by faith apart from works in such a way that it just makes you squirm. Like, really? I'm justified? Like, I don't have to do anything? It's just trust in Christ? But his understanding of what happens to you when you are justified doesn't just stop with a legal pronouncement of not guilty but righteous, you see. He says, but at the very same time, you actually die with Christ and walk in newness of life. So conversion involves justification, but also a sanctification, a renewal of your inward man, your inner man, a a coming to life. So that if a person has received baptism, symbolizing that they have died with Christ and been raised with Christ, but as they live their life, it looks no different. It's the same old walking with the, in the course of this world, following the devil, following the lusts of the flesh, and there's no change. Then you have to ask, have they really died with Christ? And begun walking in newness of life? They've misunderstood something, something. Because a newness of life is going to bear fruit in their life. So we want to be careful that we don't... This is not about at this point. This is still... Paul is saying this is what has happened to you. So he's not saying if you've put your faith in Christ, you better start working. That's not what he's saying here, right? He's saying, this has happened to you. And that is why you can't just keep on sinning. Because of what's happened to you. Does that make sense? Anyone? Yeah, Paul. That phrase, we too might walk in the newness of life. In our day, might could be, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But I would imagine that word, I don't know what it is in the Greek, but I would imagine that would be for sure it's going to happen. Well, I think that this construction here, in order that we too might, in order that we too might, it's it's saying that because this has happened for the purpose of this, right? It's not might as in, well, you know, the A's might win the World Series. Probably they won't. Right? It's not like that. It's like this happened so that this might happen. So it's drawing a causal connection between the two. But yeah, it's not intended to leave something open there. Yeah, it's okay. actually a purpose statement that in order that is... Uh, right. It's like that this is the purpose from right. why we were buried, so that we would walk the same ways of life. So it might, it might make it sound like there's something right. in the air about it, but that's not at all the intent. Exactly. Yeah. Ben is actually a 
better Greek scholar than I am, so it's more fresh in his mind as he just finishes them did. Yeah. No, and that's it's I think you're right. That construction there is not meant to convey a question mark. Anyone else? Okay, let's keep going then. So, an interpretive question. Some of you may have been thrown off by the fact that in this verse says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him, especially this, by baptism into death. You see, is it, it could leave you with that question. Is he saying, you know, first of all, what does Paul mean by baptism in verses 3 through 4? And then we could ask, is this phrase by baptism, is he saying that baptism is actually the means by which you were united to Christ? Now, some have argued that when Paul uses the word baptism here, he's not speaking of water baptism. He's speaking of like spiritual baptism. He's using baptism in a different sense. I find that hard to believe. I think, and this is the direction that most Baptists have gone, but even other scholars of other traditions, that he would use the word baptism, baptizo, in connection with your conversion and not be referring to water, the rite of baptism. It, it seems unlikely that that is the case. Because as soon as he used that word, especially in this type of context, it seemed people would understand that he was referring to the rite of baptism, by which symbolizing their which they received, symbolizing their union with Christ and their entrance into the new covenant community. So I think almost certainly when he uses the word baptism, he is referring to the rite of water baptism. But then if that's true, right? Because if it refers to some kind of spiritual baptism, well then there would be no problem, right? <laughs> because our baptism could, if it's just referring basically in a spiritual way to our immersion into Christ, well then, yeah, we were baptized into his death in that sense. But if it is re- referring to the ritual of water baptism, as I think it is, then then is he describing baptism as the means by which we are united to Christ and come to participate in the benefits of his death and resurrection? You see, this would be an important distinction because it is true that many throughout the history of the church have viewed baptism as the means by which you actually are regenerated, right? You've heard of baptismal regeneration, still believed by the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, that the grace of regeneration is actually conveyed to you through the performance of the rite of baptism. So it's there, that grace is there in Christ, and it comes to you when you are baptized. And that raises all sorts of issues because they also baptize infants. So you say, okay, so an infant receives the rite of baptism, and then they receive the grace of regeneration? Yes. And they can also pass out of a state of grace. They can lose the grace of regeneration and then regain it through penance and whatnot. So there's all kinds of things there. But we have to ask that question. When he says, by baptism, is he then making baptism, the rite of baptism, assuming he's speaking of water baptism, 
the means by which we are united with Christ and therefore receive the benefits of his death, baptized into his death? I don't think so. And part of the reason is because, have you read the rest of the letter? (laughs) You know, it's like, how do we receive justification? By faith, right? And it's, it's so clear that it's not by anything that we do. It's by trusting in what he has done, right? And in fact, you know, the ritual that he does address is circumcision, right? I mean, look, some people are saying, no, you need to be circumcised and believe to be saved. He says, no, <laughs> circumcision is nothing, you know, uncircumcision is nothing, right? What matters is the new creation. What matters is faith in Christ, right? And so I, I just think in the letter, it's so clear that he doesn't view baptism as sort of the means by which we receive the benefits of Christ's death. We're justified by faith, apart from works. And, for instance, there's other passages, like I, I think of 1 Corinthians 1, 17, where Paul talks about how there were factions in the church in Corinth. Because some were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by right? right? And he's saying, look, I don't remember who I baptized. I, th- I don't think I baptized any of you. Well, I may have baptized so-and-so, but other than that, I can't remember. And then he says in verse 17, For Christ did not bap- send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, if Paul believed that baptism was the means by which he received the benefits of Christ's death, then would he really say that? What do you say? I haven't come to baptize, I've come to preach, right? But that's not, but Paul didn't intend that somehow union with Christ happened through baptism in that way because he specifically indicates faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. It was, he came to preach because he knew that people would be united to Christ by faith and that they would believe when they heard the gospel. And then, of course, you have the example in Acts 10 of Cornelius. And they actually, the Spirit fell upon them when Peter preached to them. They weren't baptized, right? So you actually have some examples in the New Testament of people being receiving the Spirit prior to baptism. So, in other words, this is why Baptists have, have looked at the New Testament and seen baptism is always follows your union with Christ. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's not the means by which that takes place. It symbolizes it, right? So then, what does he mean when he says, by baptism, right? I think it's simply this. And this is the route that I would say most Baptist scholars take in interpreting this, is that... Look, baptism was a rite that symbolized your union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And in the early church, right, baptism, you've read the book of Acts, right? People believed and then they were baptized. Believed and baptized. It it followed very closely on such that, like today, we have people that are confused and they are saved and then they don't they go years without being baptized, right? And and that confusion is a result of all kinds of things. Sometimes 
you know, maybe they think they were baptized as an infant, and so they, they're confused about whether they need to be baptized again. Sometimes they just think they're just confused, like, I don't believe in all this, you know, why do I need to do that? You know, that's embarrassing or whatnot. That would have never happened in the early church. It would have been inconceivable for someone to be part of the church of Jesus Christ without having been baptized. It would have been, it just would not have registered. So there are times when Paul and other New Testament writers use the ritual of baptism as a way of referring to what it symbolized because the two were just so bound together. And I think that's what he's doing. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, because your baptism symbolized your union with Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. He's using the imagery of baptism to refer to what it symbolized. I think that's the best way of understanding the, these texts, is that they just viewed them so closely together that oftentimes they would use the one to refer to the other. Okay, So, I realize that you might have some questions about that. So what anyone want to sort of follow up on that or ask a clarifying question? Or If you disagree with me, don't say anything. Just move on. But I would say if you disagree, you've got to come up with another way of understanding it. You know, either you have to change the meaning of baptism or you have to adopt baptismal regeneration or something along those lines, which all of I think are more problematic than this interpretation. Is baptism also... This is how I've grown up believing that it's also a declaration of your discipleship and following Christ as Lord. I mean, in those days when you were baptized, that put your life in danger. Right. So, I mean, there is an element of baptism that is a public declaration. There's no doubt. Body of Christ. Functionally, it functions that way. But I think we want to be careful that we don't put the emphasis in baptism upon, you know, baptism is really me pledging allegiance to Jesus. It's actually meant to declare what Christ has done for you, right? That's the emphasis. There is also a public declaration of it. But I would say that the public part of it is mostly in the church. You're baptized in the view of the church so that they can look at the sign and they can be edified by it because they know what it symbolizes. Now, of course, if you're in a Muslim country and word gets out that you've been baptized that you're that it also has a public <laughs> well i just remember william carey's first convert when they baptized right. him he was killed within a month or so right of his baptism. so you there is an element of that but that's not necessarily the immediate intention of it now okay let's move on because i'm am looking at my clock here and realizing i have 10 minutes left okay so romans 6 5 through 11 let's look at this text together if someone would read that Romans 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Okay, now in these verses, Paul's building upon verses 3 through 4, where he had said we've died with Christ and we live with him. And he's, he's showing how our union with Christ in his death and resurrection should then transform our lives as believers. And he starts with, in verse 5, saying, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, he's saying that believers who are united by faith to Christ by faith participate in both his death and resurrection. You can't have one without the other. Right? There's a clear emphasis upon the connection between the two. So you can't say, I have been crucified with Christ, and that's all you think. You have to think, and also been raised with Christ to newness of life, right? The two go together. That's verse 5. And then, uh, verses 6 and 7, these verses, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, so he had said... This is why we can't continue to sin, because we have died with Christ. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, here he gets more specific, right? He talks about our old self. He talks about the body of sin. And what do you think he's referring to there by the body of sin, our old self? Our sinful nature, I think. But connecting it with Adam. In fact, this is literally, Ben, what does that mean? Isn't that anthropos? It literally is the old man. Who we were in Adam. The nature we inherited from Adam. That body of sin, right? Because the nature you inherited from Adam was just... It was corrupted by sin. And he's saying that body of sin, what does it mean to die with Christ? It means that your old self was crucified with him. Put to death. Brought to nothing. So that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. So your old sinful nature was in bondage to sin. But when you were united with Christ in his death, you were freed from the dominion of your sinful nature. And therefore you were, you were freed from the dominion of sin. There was a break, in other words, with your sinful nature so that It's called your old man. It no longer defines who you are. You're the new man, right? Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, put off the old self, the old man, and put on the new man, which which is created in likeness of God. So you have a regenerate heart, but that old, corrupt, sinful nature, it's still there, but it doesn't dominate you. It is dominated by sin, but you are no longer bound to it so that you would be enslaved to sin. So you've the shackles have come off. Now you are free. And you say, great, I can go do whatever I want. No, now you're free to what? Not to, not to be enslaved to sin, right? So that now you're free to obey God. And we'll get to there. All right, so that's one of the things that it means to die to sin, that your old sin nature no longer... And its passions no longer dominate you, right? Um, And then, verse 8, having participated in Christ's death in that way, we also participate in his resurrection life. So you see it here. Now, if we have died with Christ in this way, we believe that we shall also live with him. 
The two go together. And then he describes how Christ lives, right? In verses 10, 9 and 10, he says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he's saying Christ has died to sin once and for all, and now he lives permanently. And he says, if you are united to Christ in his life, that means that these things apply to you, right? Death no longer has dominion over you. You will never die again, but you now live to God permanently because you have been united with Christ in his life. So so you also, right? You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, why does he say you must consider yourself that way? Why would he say that? Right? And what does that make us think? The word consider means think about. Because we still sin, we can often think about ourselves in a particular way, right? As being, oh, we're all Eeyores. Woe is me. I'm still bound to sin. I used to have a guy in my previous church who drove around with like those verses in Romans 7, you know, I do not, I do not do the things I want. He had those verses on his license plate. It was like, you know, so that's what, you know, that's what you're, how you think of yourself, right? It's true, but like that shouldn't dominate your thinking. You should think about yourself as alive in Christ, right? No longer enslaved to sin. Right? Don't be dominated by the idea of I'm I just can't, I'm enslaved to sin. That's a wrong way of thinking about yourself. Okay, really quickly here, this interpretive question. Did you notice that phrase? Death no longer has dominion over him. Oh. <laughs> Death had dominion over Christ in some way? Well, It wasn't that death had dominion over Christ in the way that it has dominion over us, right? Death reigned over us because we were in Adam. But Christ, death had dominion over Christ because he willingly submitted himself to death. So he, you remember when he approached his death, you know, he basically told Judas, this is your hour. You know, this is the hour. I'm going to give myself into the power of Satan. I'm, this is the hour I'm going to become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is the hour I will submit myself to the stroke of death. In, in that way. That's what it means that death had dominion over him. Right? And why did he do that? So that he might free us from the reign of death. Right? Okay, let's look at the last verses here. And I will read these for the sake of time. Verses 12 through 14. So remember, he's just said, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Believe your baptism, right? You've been baptized, right? Believe what it symbolizes. You've died with Christ. You are now alive for him and he will never die again. He's died once for all and that's counted for you. Now you're alive for all. Let not sin, therefore, because that's true of you, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't act like sin still is your master to make you obey its passions. 
Do your sinful desires still try to bring you under their control? Yes. But he says, you're not under their control. Death, sin doesn't reign over you. Therefore, don't let it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, under law, but under grace. So after commanding his Christian readers to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, Paul commanded them to live accordingly. How? By using their bodies, their members, mortal bodies, your members, to obey God rather than sin. So, since they have died to their sinful nature, their body of sin has been brought to nothing. They're no longer enslaved by sin. Well, don't let that sinful nature and its passions rule over you. Don't bring yourself under that yoke. More specifically, they should use their bodies to serve God, who is their new master, rather than serving sin, their old master. That's verse 13. And then verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. So the reason they should do this is because it accords with reality. Sin doesn't have dominion over them. So they, so they shouldn't live like it does. So in other words, this isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't like the power of positive thinking. If you just believe it hard enough, it will happen. No, it has happened. Christ has freed you from the power of sin and death, the slavery to sin. So therefore, live like it. Don't let sin rule over you. We're not under sin's tyranny anymore. You're not under law, but under grace. Okay, so there's so much to be said, and unfortunately, I might have to come back to this next time, but when it says under law, I believe it's talking about the old covenant law. And when it says grace, that's everything that's in Christ. That is everything that belongs to the new covenant. I think this is an old covenant, new covenant. You know, a new thing has happened in redemptive history. The old covenant has, is done. You're not under that administration anymore. You are in Christ in the new covenant. And because the new covenant is superior to the old in that it provides permanent forgiveness and inner transformation, right? I will remember their sins no more. I will write my law upon their hearts. That's the administration you're under. Therefore, right, sin doesn't have dominion over you. If you were under the old covenant, might you still be under, enslaved to sin? In fact, most were. There were some that had their hearts changed, like Joshua and David. And, but most did not. But a new day has come, and you're in Christ. And they shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest, if we've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can't keep living in sin. Now, I know that if I gave you time to ask questions, a lot of you would have questions about, yeah, we're not under the reign of sin anymore, but how come I can't just be perfect? Well, wait till Romans 7, right? And we'll talk about it. But, but the point here is that a true believer has died to sin and, walk, and is walking in newness of life, and there should be a change. And you can't just think, oh, it's okay for me to just keep living a sinful lifestyle. So you might fall into sin anymore, but what will be your reaction to it? I hate it. This is miserable. 
God, help me, you know? Okay, that's, that's what he means. And then this reminds us of the necessity for Christians to be baptized and of what baptism symbolizes. We've talked about that. And it gives us hope that if we've been united to Christ by faith, then we've received both that legal justification, not guilty but righteous, but you've also received an inward transformation so that you, the reign of sin is broken over you and the reign of death is broken over you, right? That's good news. So you should think of yourself that way. Dead to sin, alive to God. And then finally, you mustn't think of yourselves as slave to sin, right? When you become entangled to sin, there can be what, you, what I like to call a temporary bondage to sin. Or you look at someone, they profess faith in Christ, but they continue in a pattern and they're entangled. And the Bible even says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You could be temporarily caught in a sin and you need help to get out. But the point is, is that that sin, it's, this is not a state of being in bondage to sin like you were before. You have the ability to walk in obedience because you have new life in Christ. It's just a matter of getting the help that you need, the instruction that you need. And that's how you should think of yourself as fundamentally free. And then finally, obedience doesn't happen automatically, but it requires resolve and effort on your part. And I just make this point because some people think, okay, a new life in Christ. Lord, just do it, you know. But what does Paul say? Don't present the members of your body to sin, but present your members to God. So there's responsibility. This is what I've done for you. I've freed you. You now have new life. So go and do it. So there is responsibility that flows out of this too. It's not just like, well, it'll just happen naturally. Meanwhile, I don't have to put in any effort. No. Okay, so let's leave it at that and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these glorious truths. Lord, we can truly say with Paul that if anyone would suggest that having, since we're justified by faith apart from works as a gift of grace, that somehow we could just continue living in sin. That we emphatically say from our hearts, by no means, may it never be because of what our baptism symbolized, at least in part, that we have died to our old man and now walk in newness of life by the Spirit, already alive to God. So help us, O God, to live according, to not take the members of our body and give them to sin's passions, but as Paul would say later on in this letter, to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit and to give our bodies to God, to you, our Father, to be instruments of righteousness. Help us, O Lord, we pray. Give us hope and confidence as a result of what we've seen today from your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.